Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Jane, co-founder of Women's Art Wednesday and friend of the podcast. Jane, where's Bianca? Didn't you hear? Today's Art Pop Talk is all about brides of art and pop history. And as your fellow 2023 bride, it's only fitting that I co-host. So let's Art Pop Talk. Oh my gosh, that literally brought me so much joy. Uh, Jane, welcome back to the podcast. We are literally so excited and thrilled that you are here. And as a fellow 2023 bride, I just stand everything about today's episode. So we have done a prior episode on the history of bachelorette parties. And for today, we are so getting into, we're just doing a nice deep dive on brides of art history and pop culture. I also loved how I just kind of mean girl Bianca out of this episode. <laughs> I know. You just come on. I feel like such an imposter right now. I'm like, I'm not Bianca. <laughs> the imposter syndrome is also just real, I think, on any day of Art Pop Talk. I'm like, who am I to Oh, it's very big podcast? shoes to fill also. Like, I listen to Art Pop Talk all the time, and now it feels weird. I'm like, where is she? <laughs> where is she? No, we, we do miss Bianca, but I think that she is more than happy to pass her mic along to you for this episode. It's <laughs> she's so exciting. Probably, she's probably busy doing maid of honor duties, because let me tell you, it's like a lot of work. <laughs> She she literally is. That is that is very true. Yeah, I um I have definitely put her to work this year and am eternally grateful. Um, so Jane, you're getting married this spring. That's correct. I am. It's like alarmingly close. There's a, like I said, it's a lot of work, and it's right around the corner for us actually. So um, yeah, spring wedding coming at you. We're gonna do it outside. So hoping for the best weather wise, and uh, yeah. Very exciting. It's it's going to be great. Is it a Colorado spring wedding? It is a Colorado spring wedding. So it's kind of like, you know, like I said, a complete gamble when it comes to the weather end of things and stuff like that. But, you know, I think that it's like as a your wedding planning and we were only engaged for a year. So I know like you've had a little bit of a longer engagement. Um, yeah. And I was like, I know that I need to get this done in a year because otherwise I'll just overthink every detail and like you know, be too excited yeah. and stuff like that. So um, it like went by so fast, the planning process and getting everything set. And so now I'm kind of like in this phase of like, well, it's going to happen either way. Like we've got the day in the place and like it's going down. So, you know, if all the little details totally. don't come together, we're kind of in this stage of acceptance at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to get to that stage. I'm not quite there yet. I'm still in the kind of scrutinizing stage, but I think the best thing that someone told me, and I feel like multiple people have said this, is that if details go wrong or they're not what you thought they were, the good news is is that that information only exists in your brain and nobody else knows that that wasn't supposed to happen. Oh, that's such great advice. That's so good. Yeah. We love some perspective. You're a fall bride, right? You're coming up in the fall. I'm a fall bride. I kind of have a little bit of ownership over the fall season because my birthday is on the first day of fall. And as much as I love the spring, it just doesn't matter in the state of Oklahoma. You could get married in the fall, the spring, or the winter, and you could be getting married on the most beautiful day or the most tragic day that ever existed (laughs) in the world. So 
fall, so September in Oklahoma, honestly, I don't, I couldn't even tell you like what the temperature is going to be like. We're just going to see. Our ceremony is outside, but um, our reception is going to be inside. And, you know, if for some reason the weather is horrible, we can always get married inside. Um, That is just, that is something that I've just accepted and it just is what it is, right? Because that's just something you can't control and you just have to move forward and pick a date. Yeah. You kind of know what the weather is going to be like. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Jing, tell us a little bit about Women's Art Wednesday. We had you on with your co-founder Paloma back in, oh my gosh, seems like a hot minute ago. It was definitely Uh, 2022. Yeah. Obviously. But what has been going on? How did the book launch go? Any updates to share with the Art Pop-Tarts? Yeah. So, you know, I can't come on without talking about Women's Art Wednesday, even if I'm here in like a personal capacity today. And that's like, (laughs) speaking of missing Bianca, I'm also like, oh, I feel like, you know, a limb has been chopped off to not have Paloma. (laughs) I'm so used to her being here to fill my silences and stuff. Um, But yes, we're doing well. So um, Paloma and I released the Women's Art Wednesday book on International Women's Day last year. So we just hit the one year anniversary of the book coming out, um, which was super exciting and kind of surreal because, uh, you know, talk about like big projects that take a lot of planning and, you know, you build up a lot in your head and then it finally happens and it feels crazy. Um, So we did that. And then we kind of took like a massive break after that happened um just because we were you know capped out and tired at the end of the project but it was really great um it was like in a great way because it was from like so much support and like events that we were getting asked to speak at and classes we were going to so like the book came out and we really hit this like whirlwind of people wanting to talk to us and learn about the project and do things so it was like the best possible problem to have um but we were kind of tired over the summer so we kind of took some time off of like you know, talking to classes and doing book sales and all this stuff. And then we sort of geared back up in the fall and are kind of now getting back at it. So we've been running a couple like women in art history workshops with a few different universities um, and just kind of like trying to tie things back to the Women's Art Wednesday project and the goal. Um, We've been talking to a couple little art groups lately and things like that. So we're really just kind of hyping the book right now. Um, And when we when people ask us about kind of the next project or the next phase, I think that um, they'll probably center around the book. So I know one thing we're really interested in doing is like a Spanish language edition of the book um, because Paloma is a native Spanish speaker. And also like, we would just love to do that. Love to expand like the reach of the book and stuff like that. And then also possibly a children's book, which I think could be really exciting. Remove some of the saucy language from (laughs) the original copy and like, do some different illustrations to kind of do like a more youth targeted stuff because we've also been doing a little bit more lately with like youth outreach and like supporting young women artists and kind of like getting the info in front of kids to be like hey like when you go throughout your life and learn things and look at the world like think about why women are or are not included in the books you get in school and stuff like that so all all Um, that is kind of what's going on that brought my heart just literally so much joy. I, I love that you guys are doing more youth outreach to to talk about women in the arts. Um, it When I hear people talk about that, also such a full circle moment for me because I had access to learning about art at such a young age and such a, I think, well-rounded um, way where that information was coming to me from multiple points of entry. And I think also 
to when I look at children's books that highlight historical figures, it's such a distilled down version as well, which we kind of understand the reasons why that is, but also some of those books celebrate really problematic figures that isn't giving the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that like someone like Coco Chanel is APT's like problematic cop-out <laughs> example. And I know you all are so tired of that, but she is a good case study for looking at, like, I have seen like children's books where, you know, they celebrate icons, you know, like Coco Chanel and, to have a different kind of perspective come from a platform like Women's Art Wednesday just literally brings me so much joy. I I I just I love the information that you guys are putting out into the world and I think doing that so it's accessible to different groups of people is just chef's kiss. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. well, it's also like the realization I had to start Women's Art Wednesday was like, wow, I'm like 3 years into a college degree in art history before I even started thinking about like why can most people not name five famous women artists and I think kind of getting ahead of that curve and showing kids you know this is an important part of history and then it just becomes kind of like second nature to see the world that way um and I certainly wish that I had you know more of an awareness of that as I started school and looking at the arts and you know all of that so uh, yeah. yeah, and then certainly, like you said, the things of who do we choose to put in those books? And uh, Paloma and I yeah. can be pretty critical as well. So um, although yeah. I will say I was going to tell you guys about your episode on Coco Chanel and the Met Gala and stuff like that. We uh, wanted to do a Women's Art Wednesday feature on Scaparelli. And oh my God. we were like, hold yes. on, let's just like go through and like make sure this is an unproblematic figure in fashion history, which of course we were like, okay, we start with APT. Like we got to do our deep dive because we're not. Don't start with AP. We're so biased when it comes to Scaparelli. We're like queen oh, can do no wrong. Queen. Yeah, I loved, loved it. But we were, it was one of those things that like that discussion on Coco Chanel, like really made me be like oh especially when you're talking about fashion because fashion is like such celebrity you know and like I just feel like there's a lot there's a lot there that can get like dredged up and so now we're like extra careful when we're doing a fashion related women's art Wednesday feature but yes Scaparelli amazing love her also what an incredible segue in today's discussion which is particularly fashion heavy if I could get married in a Scaparelli wedding dress I I would absolutely die oh my god um Scaparelli recently also just hosted an event and they have these beautiful place settings with, um, you know, their classic kind of ornamental uh, body part. It like it that was placed on top of a napkin on top of the plate. So they had like the lungs or the oh lips, like just covered in gold that was on the place setting. <laughs> I, I fucking died, Jane. I was like, I... Now my wedding is trash because I don't have this Scaparelli place <laughs> setting. Like I, uh, I, it it was literally stunning. But to to Jane's point, I think that there are so many kind of interesting intersections with fashion, and that is something that we'll be particularly exploring today. So I think without further ado, for today's art pop talk. 
Jane and I will be discussing brides throughout our MPOP history. Jane will be taking us through some art historical examples of maybe a little bit of wedding portraiture, some quintessential examples, as we like to say, and then also discussing wedding dress fashion. And then we'll discuss how these visuals translate and shape our modern perceptions of bridal and wedding culture. So Jane, how do you feel? You want to kick us off? Oh my gosh, yes. I'm so excited to talk about this topic because it's like really nice to have a, an excuse to be like, oh, I've been thinking about weddings constantly anyway. And so now I can like bring <laughs> it into my love of art history and visual culture. Um, it's definitely not useless knowledge. It's I've, I have felt like now half my brain is taken up with this information and it is so satisfying to be able to do something with it. But I'm also like... I feel like we should be able to have jobs as like corporate event planners now with like the amount of work it takes to plan your own wedding. I'm like, if you've planned a wedding, you're like qualified for these kinds of things. 1000%. But it is interesting because I know when we initially talked about me coming on for this, it was about kind of doing a lot of stuff with wedding portraiture, which I will for sure talk about. And there are some very cool examples in art history. Um, But it's hard with weddings because there's actually so many interesting histories. And then I really started to rabbit hole on like, where did this come from? And where did this come from? Um, So one of my favorite little random tidbits that I learned while doing some wedding research uh, was about the history of bridal parties. And I just wanted to mention this because I thought it was amazing um, that some early mentions of like having people stand with you during your wedding that are also like dressed up and your close associates and stuff like that have to do with uh, traditions in the Roman empire and some beliefs that like you needed these doppelgangers around you to distract any kind of like bad vibes bad spirits like anything that meant you harm on your wedding day to kind of like protect you and the groom from this like you know whatever possible like bad things could happen to you um by kind of being your right. annoying relatives <laughs> yeah you know. right exactly. <laughs> like <laughs> so ever since I've learned that I've had a really good time telling my friends like oh hey like you're just here to <laughs> like protect me you are my bodyguards today <laughs> you know it is such a the bridal party is such a funny like concept because to me they have just felt like human props and like I don't know how to say that in any other way that is not like demoralizing or dehumanizing but it does feel kind of like a dance for me puppet kind of moment and it's kind of um can be not necessarily it hasn't been uncomfortable for my bridesmaids but like for me I'm like is this okay I'm like I don't want to like how to like I just am a chronic people pleaser so it's just been more so uncomfortable for me. Oh, I yeah. Think. Like, people are asking me, what do you want me to wear? And I'm like, it feels so weird. I know it's what you do, but it feels so weird right. to, like, dictate what somebody's going to wear. Or people are like, well, what kind of shoes do you want me to be in? How do you want my hair? Like, I give <laughs> two shits. Like, you can do whatever you want. I know. Well, and, like, our uh, three-year-old nephew had requested to wear his Spider-Man suit for the wedding. And we were like, yeah, do it. Like, <laughs> and oh his mom gosh. was like, absolutely not. Not going to happen. Well, as a, a fellow auntie with a nephew that just stands Spider-Man and who recently FaceTimed me with a Venom mask, um, as much as I love him, I, I might draw the line at the Venom mask. You were like, this is actually terrifying. Um, yeah, it was, yeah. Yes. So I kind of digressed there because I just thought that was a fun and interesting tidbit. But it is kind of to the point that, like, there is so much tradition and, like, 
expectation and symbolism that go into weddings, even in our modern world, which I will say, like, I think even from our parents' generation to ours, there's been kind of a shift in like weddings don't have to follow one traditional model. And like you can incorporate these different things that you like or do it in a lot of different ways. Um, But it's interesting to me how many things have kind of persisted through culture and particularly like Western culture um, when it comes to weddings and where those things sort of come from. So actually doing research for an episode like this is kind of hard because there's so many interesting weird facets of the wedding experience these days so one other thing that I think would we'd be like remiss to not mention is uh the history of wedding portraits is kind of taken up in the western canon by the Arnolfini wedding portrait which is for those of you who haven't seen it it's a painting by Jean Van Eyck um who is a Dutch renaissance painter and particularly with the Dutch Renaissance, there's like an insane amount of symbolism in pieces of art and in fine art. It's like they literally had to publish like guides to reading the painting because there are so many things in it that are symbolic of something else. Um, so when you- I, I must note that Jane has taken full, uh, full ownership of our doc and has put hello symbolism in, which just is amazing. <laughs> yes, hello symbolism. <laughs> Um, it's honestly a little intimidating. I'm like, how do I even begin to talk about this thing? So uh, I will get to the Arnolfini wedding portrait, but it's got like so much of its own stuff going on that I'm going to actually leave that to the end um, because it's just kind of a lot. But yeah, I think that that's kind of another thing about the wedding portrait tradition in art history is that a lot of it is heavily westernized. So I tried to kind of do a dive on like, what do we have as far as like non-western wedding portraiture or how they mark these things um and there's just not a lot that you can find in kind of the more traditional means of research like jstor or museum websites or things like that that aren't happening in europe and america when it comes to like Mm -hmm. wedding portrait art history um and that's because like weddings kind of take a lot of different forms around the world and like what they mean for people um and so a lot of what you can find kind of outside of the Western European canon is what you're talking about too, is like fashion history and things about like what different cultures around the world wear to symbolize weddings and stuff like that. And then another really interesting thing that I uh, learned in looking this up was that, you know, it's a fairly modern concept that people get married for love. And for a lot of human history, it's been kind of this transactional, like, okay, we are combining resources, like there are people, so there's a lot of documentation of it, but it wasn't until Um, like a more quote-unquote modern time so like medieval era that we really started to be able to find things in art history that are like oh this is like a marking of like a special event in these people's lives Um, so I think that that is kind of just worth noting as sort of a caveat on the wedding portraiture that some of this is going to be pretty western heavy um, and I think actually a better historian than me should go through and start doing like a more global history of how weddings are documented throughout time and like how that changes. But yeah, one of the earliest examples I was able to find um, was a portrait of two people that they assume are were married. Um, it's considered a wedding portrait, and it was actually found on the wall of a home in Pompeii, and it dates back to the first century. Um, Don't you just love that everything goes back to Pompeii? I know. Like, my God. And, and it's also just like, it's one of the most fascinating places from an art history standpoint, because this is something that was probably only exists because of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, because it was a wall fresco mm. that probably mm. would have like deteriorated over time. 
Um, you know, there's not a lot of things comparable to it from that time period, but the, you know, the chemical interactions of things that are, you know, far beyond my knowledge of how that works, kind of the preserved a lot of what was in Pompeii to a degree that you just don't see elsewhere. So um, that's kind of cool. And that's one of the things that's considered like one of the first known distinct wedding portraits of a husband and wife who are, you know, uh, depicted in their home. And it also has these hallmarks of things that I think is a really common thread throughout wedding portraiture, which is depicting these symbols of wealth with them. Um, and I think it's not necessarily surprising to, you know, a viewer to realize that that is a prominent element of wedding portraiture in history, because there's only like so many people in a lot of time periods that could afford to have a portrait of themselves commissioned, uh, let alone for like a specific life event. So um, I think that, you know, you typically find people in the Western canon in wedding portraiture that are on the wealthier side of things, you know, and have kind of means and then also go out of their way to represent that. So I thought that was really interesting that you can kind of find that trend happening all the way back in the first century in Pompeii. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when we think of something even as intricate as a fresco in all of the frescoes that they've kind of unburied from Pompeii as well, I mean, it is it is interesting when you look back at any archaeological site, like when I visited like Knossos or Akrotiri, um, like you can see those kind of statuses of of wealth happening at, at such an early period. So it's it's definitely the trend. And I think I will even get into that too when we talk about the modern wedding, how when we think of something that is like an iconic wedding, uh, it is this kind of elaborate display of wealth. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that that's something that is uh, still really interesting that like, average people you know I think with like weddings today we look at like oh celebrity weddings and like these big things and um having planned my own wedding there it's like ruined me on looking at celebrity weddings because I look at things and I'm like how much did that flower arch cost them like <laughs> I'm like um I'm a peasant like <laughs> this is this is real yeah. this is real yeah. yeah yeah and I mean I think that that is such a strange part of our modern life that average people are kind of expected to um display this like wealth that they may or may not actually have at their wedding um and mm -hmm. it's kind of it's a pretty common thing of like things we don't do every day like paying for makeup and hair and expensive clothes and like all of the stuff getting it documented by a photographer um and I think that it's interesting to see how that really ties to kind of a tradition of wealthier people being represented in art history throughout time because they're the ones who could afford mm -hmm. to represent themselves and they kind of yeah. display their wealth at these life events like a wedding via portraiture and i wonder how much of that actually plays into like what we think of today as like what a wedding should be you know with these kinds of like oh i need these very specific specific dresses and like flowers that are expensive and and things like that kind of like tying back to how that's always been a part of wedding documentation yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. And I think to your point as well, and kind of like our whole today when looking at wedding and bridal culture on a global scale, I think from my own experiences, the display of wealth, I think is always there, like transnationally, but I, it is kind of different, I think, based on culture to culture, kind mm -hmm. of how that is done or incorporated. And I can kind of speak from my very kind of limited experience in going to kind of different cultural weddings. Like, for example, like going to Malaysia just recently to go to my future brother-in-law's wedding. I think the kind of the different 
things or like focal points, uh, aspects, visual components, decorations, um, things are, they're just these minuscule little things that someone with a visual lens, I think will pick up on in terms of kind of what is taking the precedence and ownership versus what is kind of taking the precedence in my wedding, for example. And I think sometimes those displays, um, they're just, they're like a little bit different and it is, it, it is interesting. They're all still there. Um, but I think that's also kind of where the hole is too in, in kind of today's research and helping like paint that kind of global picture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's another thing too, that was like, we could do a whole other episode about like wedding decor and the history of different like elements of how you style a wedding and how that happens all around the world. Um, that's just something that I think is really interesting. And it is fun about planning your wedding. And you're like, how do I, you know, put in my personal style and like personal touches to this um, and things mm-hmm. like that. But yeah, absolutely. It is an interesting kind of world when it gets into weddings. And um, there's so many different little like niches about it and I I've really enjoyed looking back through portraits in art history of like what represented a union of two people in art history and how did that differentiate from regular portraiture Um, because Mm -hmm. I also think that it's a really interesting example of like it's so common for us in the modern era to just document life events you know we're taking pictures all the time and posting them like I graduated I'm getting married I had a child you know anything like that Mm -hmm. and um, it, that's not always been true throughout history because of like the resources, especially pre-photography being everywhere. Um, yeah. so yeah, I think that that's, it's kind of an interesting example of like marking an event and it's not necessarily in art history with wedding portraits. A lot of the time, like, you know, showing, oh, this is like a realistic depiction of this wedding that actually happened. It's kind of a, a like stylized, uh, like amalgamation of these people's whole lives and what that event symbolized in their life, which um, is just something that I think like we still kind of do through modern means. Absolutely. And also enter Arnold Feeney portrait. Enter as well. Arnold Feeney portrait. So yes, it is probably time to talk about that one. Um, and I feel like we can put some like pictures of these wedding portraits up and stuff like that. It's always like interesting to talk about a painting without directly looking at it. Um, because uh, yes, one... <laughs> welcome to the other end of the microphone. Yes, so. it is. Uh, I will do my best to paint a picture here <laughs> of uh, <laughs> what's going on in this portrait, but there are just like so many things. So the Arnold Finney wedding portrait is one of those pieces of artwork that like, if you say the name, somebody that um, isn't necessarily considering themselves like an art historian or an art lover might not be able to like bring something to mind, but I guarantee most people have seen it because it is all over the place. Um, if you have watched Desperate Housewives, it makes an appearance in the opening. Amazing. So case in point. Yeah, case in point right there. <laughs> Desperate Housewives. Uh, yeah, it's like it's in tons of pop culture. I feel like it's just one of those things that you like randomly see on like a poster in a doctor's office or things like that. Like it's all over the place. <laughs> At your OBGYN. Yeah. So, you know, it's just hanging <laughs> just out. Like, yeah. You know, this Be fertile. <laughs> yeah. Wear green. Right. There you go. Um, <laughs> So it is a well-known portrait of a a husband and wife. One thing that I think is hilarious about this is that I, in doing research, they're not even really sure this was the Arnolfini's. Like, it's called the Arnolfini wedding portrait. It's probably this guy, Giovanni Di Niccolo Arnolfini, and his wife, Costanza Trenta. Um, But that's, like, not confirmed. We don't know that for sure. 
And yeah. so that to me is also really amazing. It's called the Arnolfini wedding portrait, but um, it is a husband and wife and she is dressed in this like very iconic billowing green dress, which has a little bit of a contour to make it look like she might be pregnant. Um, and it is, yeah, like this symbol of fertility and renewed life and uh, a fresh start and, you know, all the stuff that we associate with like green um, but it's a very prominent piece of the of the image, and it's clearly not the like traditional Western white poofy wedding dress. Um, so again, kind of like the prominence of symbolism in those things. There's also like the mirror in the background is a symbol of Mary. There's a cherry tree outside, a symbol of love. There's a dog at their feet, which is a symbol of loyalty. There's oranges and lavish rugs that are symbols of wealth. There's like a one single burning candle in a chandelier that's a symbol of the eye of God like there are so many things hella symbolism as I put in the document that like symbolism. are supposed to represent kind of what I've already touched on of like this idea of marriage reflecting these people's lives and who they are um, and also kind of like all the things that they want to be associated with at this life event so that one mm-hmm. is one that is just like to me it is the quintessential Dutch Renaissance painting because it is just full of all of this stuff and like layers of meaning through visual representation. Yeah. It also takes place in a very intimate space because there's a bed. We can infer that it's also in a bedroom. There's also, uh, you know, Christian iconography. Like there's like the passion of Christ, that kind of circle, the mirror in the background, the mirror also just for funsies has this optical illusion of the, of this portrait actually being painted by the painter. Mm -hmm. So that's just, doesn't have anything to even do with anything. He just was like, I'm going to make this way more complicated <laughs> He's like, than it needs to be. I'm in this too. And the, the <laughs> number one thing that I love is all of this carefully planned detail. And then the wall of their bedroom has ostensibly like painted on it, basically Jean Van Eyck was here. Like the artist right, has right. prominently signed his name in the middle of this portrait as though it's kind of like painted on the wall of the bedroom that they're standing in. Um, which I just think is like hilarious. <laughs> yeah, Van Eyck is just causing chaos, but we're kind of here for it. <laughs> causing chaos. And then one other thing that I thought was really interesting about this portrait is that it's, and it's also sort of like art historian doing their art historian thing where they're super analyzing, but um, I love it. I'm here for it. I'm here for like the story and the drama of every painting. Uh, <laughs> but they, a lot of, you know, it's assumed to be this wedding portrait, um, probably these two people. And also, um, there are some theories and kind of like research to support that it is potentially a painting that was created um, significantly after this couple was married. So, um, you know, possibly within like seven to 10 years after they were married and potentially even after the death of the wife. So it might be something that was actually commissioned, not so much as like, a, hey, we got married today. So come out here and paint our portrait, but almost kind of like a remembrance of who this wife was and possibly commissioned by her husband to kind of mark the life that they did have together because it's commonly thought that this woman died in childbirth and there's so much imagery of like fertility and pregnancy and like you said the bed and the dress and um you know all of these things that I think it's really interesting to contemplate like why was this created as well as what's in it I I love that and you know I'm just even though I'm going to save most of our modern content for the later half of this episode, I do feel the need to throw in one of the examples I was thinking about um, in terms of kind of a 
fictitious example of kind of portraiture was referring to the movie of a portrait of a lady on fire. Because at the end of that movie, you know, spoiler alerts, if you haven't watched it yet, she, there's this painting of this woman and like her now family, but in the painting, she's holding a book with an open page that looks very sexual. It's very kind of like reminiscent of like a vulva as she has this corner of this page turn, but it's to pay homage to her woman lover who and kind of you know just look back on the life that they couldn't have together you know because of the times because it was set in like I don't know like the 1800s or something right and although that is kind of like a fictitious example like there is like that kind of undertone that symbolism that does remind me of this real painting that does exist the Arnolfini portrait of kind of paying homage to this supposed person or this kind of relationship and so even though there are tones of okay this isn't quite a marriage portrait or it could be you know just uh an item to have for this individual i i kind of i debated on bringing up the portrait of a lady on fire but it it does kind of present some of the same information yeah well and i think also portraiture is such a personal style of art form you know and like there's so Mm -hmm. many examples throughout history of like the interesting and often problematic, but sometimes just interesting relationships between models and painters. And, um, you know, one thing that I <clears throat> look at a lot with Women's Art Wednesday is like how many women actually became painters because they started out as portrait models or figure models, you yeah. know? Yeah. And they, yeah. they were able to kind of like learn by observing the process that way and then start doing their own paintings and stuff like that. So, um, and then it's also a really good point, I think, to bring up that Um, the history that we have of wedding portraiture in art history is not only heavily westernized, it's also heavily heterosexual. And not a lot of queer relationships are represented in like the canon of art history. Although I will say like, and again, maybe a topic for a whole other podcast episode, but I think that there are more examples of that in art history than like maybe traditional history has wanted to admit. And even if you see things in museums, you know, like part of it, um, also with the Arnolfini wedding portrait is that we don't always know the actual histories of people that are depicted um, in Mm -hmm. portraits and, you know, their real relationships with each other. And I do think it's really fun and interesting to look at the ways that like artists have hinted at their, um, you know, personal relationships with people that might not be like openly accepted to put in a portrait in the Academy of Art, you know, in the Victorian England landscape. Um, yeah. So yeah. Anyway, yeah. I think that that it, it's fictitious, but it also is something that I think is like not out of bounds for the reality of a lot of art history. Well, some things that we talk about with art history too is like we have to bring up these examples that are fictitious because we don't have the record of what actually did happen, and so it's just an. I, I think it's a very astute perspective, and sometimes we lose that within visual history is to not always talk about what is not there and what is not seen. Yeah. But, you know, it's equally important to kind of bring that into the analysis for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I actually still haven't seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and I really want to. So now you're just putting um, this back at the top of my list. Now it's recalling. It's, um, yeah, it's spicy. We like it. Amazing. <laughs> yes, I love that. I love that. Um, so the the talks of like things that have heavily impacted our wedding traditions today kind of bring me to my other non-portraiture rabbit hole, which I know also can um, kind of go in with what you're going to talk about, about like modern fashion history. Um, But it's also like 
such a huge part of the wedding landscape to look at the big poofy white dress. And you can't really talk about that without talking about Queen Victoria, who was also depicted at her wedding for, I think, uh, maybe like the first time people assume it might be one of the first like photographed wedding portraits, um, or at least one of the most well-known early wedding photographs. Um, And I think that that's really interesting, too, because when I look at that, uh, those types of photographs, which, you know, given the resources kind of make sense, but they follow a lot more of the like traditional painting portraiture style than our like current modern wedding photography does. Because I feel like modern photography kind of leans on like more like a photojournalism mentality of like capturing candidates or, you know, things like that. And people do portraits, but um, just looking at this image of Queen Victoria at her wedding, she's not only like kind of popularizing the big poofy white dress, but she's also like in set up in this way that is very reminiscent to me of like these art historical like painted portraits. Um, yeah. So it's interesting to see like how those types of uh, traditions have kind of persisted and where maybe some of our photography originates. But um, yeah, because yeah. to kind of give some, um, you know, visual kind of elements here, auditory elements um, on the podcast. It's interesting because, you know, both, you know, bride and groom, husband, wife are looking at each other. They're not necessarily engaging with the camera, um, which is really interesting. So although we do have these early examples of, I think, people engaging with the viewer, as we say, in a painting, um, it's pretty intimate moment that I think is captured that also is starting to encompass that kind of um, curated um, set up like you're speaking to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you're also like really hitting the nail on the head that a lot of these like historical wedding portraits are very intimate. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like this peek into, you know, a couple's private life in a way that can be really interesting and, and beautiful. And then the last thing that I'll say before turning it over to Gianna to talk about all the modern pop culture bridal <laughs> things um, is that there is also kind of an interesting history in art history of paintings that are uh, not necessarily depicting wedding portraits, but were maybe given as wedding gifts. And a very prominent example being the birth of Venus, which is a, yes, like, I just love it. And, you know, sometimes with Women's Art Wednesday, people are like, do you even talk about male artists? And I'm like, listen, I love me some bottom jelly. So <laughs> I will talk. About I'll give you that one all day. Uh, I you know, we can talk about male artists who, you know, depict iconic, stunning, amazing women and mythological figures we can talk about that and that's also kind of an interesting thing is that a lot of women depicted in art history are not actually real women they are like mythological and fictitious women um so Mm -hmm. one thing that i think is really interesting to look at is kind of like where these images come from because birth of venus was actually commissioned as a wedding gift and Mm -hmm. it's uh kind of made popular this idea of like representing women and brides through mythology and then also the kind of quintessential motifs of mythology of like rebirth and renewal and like the things that these goddesses in mythology kind of stood for um representing a lot of what we associate with what weddings are which is kind of like a new beginning and a uh, a display of you know your innocence or whatever um so i think that that's kind of interesting too there's a lot of examples in art history of not only actual couples getting depicted through portraiture but pieces of art that are now like again talk about things you see everywhere and on every doctor's office like the birth of venus is one of the most famous paintings in the world and it was commissioned because of a wedding 
Yeah, I love that. Well, you know, everything comes back to Birth of Venus here on APT. Everything. But this is also just my unrealistic expectations. I'm like, well, great. Like, my wedding's going to be trash because no one's going to give me the birth of fucking Venus. I know. Can like, you please give well... me one of the most famous paintings of all time? Oh, my God. I might as well just give up now. Like, that's where I start to become, you know, a Debbie Downer because I just want Botticelli. But... um. Um, no, I think the way that you kind of fast and furiously encapsulated that for us, because there is so much and, you know, we cannot encapsulate it all in one episode, I think kind of gives us a nice um, segue to kind of talk about some of the fun things in pop culture. So yeah. before I start, Jane, I want to ask you, who is your favorite bride from pop culture? What stands out to you? Oh my gosh, my favorite bride from pop culture. That's like such a difficult question. Um, mm. But... Are we talking like celebrity bride or fictitious bride? You can give me either or. You can give me both. There's no limit. Okay. So I think that the, I'm not necessarily sure she's my favorite, but the one from like that I think is just my generation's like quintessential bride is the uh, the Blair Waldorf gossip girl, like princess dress first wedding. <laughs> it's just what mm-hmm. comes to mind when I think of like the most pop culture bride. Um, that I'm mm-hmm. like, this is like maybe one of the first weddings I saw represented in a show that I was watching, like as an adolescent that, yeah, yeah, she popped into my head, but I actually see in our document here that you have one of my favorite, like recent brides for the bridal <sighs> style alone, which is Alexandra Dead Dario, the actress. Um, she has this like amazing, gorgeous New Orleans wedding. And then just like the dress that she wore with the kind of like, modern but old-timey vibes I just I think I scrolled her wedding photos and I don't even like know that much of what she's in I think I've seen like true detective and she's in that but like I was obsessed. <laughs> I was like what is this wedding how do I get it like gorgeous how do I get it yeah, 100% um when I tell you how obsessed I was with Alexandra Daddario's wedding I just dropped everything because if I could afford or could be a Danielle Frankel bride. I, that is everything in my wedding is trying to encapsulate like Danielle Frankel and like Scaparelli together, but on like my like peasant level. So on our DIY like budget, um, I absolutely love it. And what you kind of spoke to is that I'll bring up her dress and kind of the stylized like photos of her wedding as well, because I think there is this return to the old or kind of return to vintage that I think some weddings are encapsulating. But I also think that it is this, it's a display of wealth, but I think it's also this display of authenticity that does represent the vibe of the couple, Mm -hmm. um, which I'll get into and how I think like modern brides and weddings are really like encapsulating the kind of aesthetics of the couple. So it's very uh, individualistic and representative of these people who are involved in their weddings. Totally. But wait, can I ask who your favorite pop culture bride is? (laughs) There are too many. Too many. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's, it's not... I would say the biggest thing that sticks out in my mind is Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella Disney version Ooh. with Brandy and Whitney Houston. Um, that 
movie was just like everything Mm -hmm. growing up to Bianca and I, we used to call it big Cinderella because it was live action. (laughs) And there's something about her like blue Cinderella dress when like Brandy wears her blue eyeshadow that will just forever be like ingrained in my brain. But when she also, you know, like Prince Charming is wearing white, she's wearing white, all of the guests are wearing white. It's just like so airy and like beautiful. And I, I, and like Bernadette Peters is like trying to climb the fence to like get into their wedding. I I just love that. So Brandy is forever and always like my number one Cinderella, like as Todrick says. And I, I think when I think of something so bridal and fictitious, it does come back to something princess-esque, sometimes like Cinderella. Yeah. And I, I do think of of Brandy like a lot. So if I had to give one, I'm I'm locking it in. Amazing. As I yeah. love that. That's such a good, <laughs> such a good example. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. I did think about it for a while though. So <laughs> I know I was like, I should have put more thought into this ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, I was like Brandy. Well, and then I also saw that um, she is making like a cameo on like Disney's Descendants. Oh no um, way! Yeah, as you know, like reviving her role as you know, like the Cinderella in Disney. And so I'm definitely gonna have to. I don't know anything about the Descendants or have tuned in, but I will be tuning in for that yeah I'm here for supporting my inner child and like my previous self 100% 100% so um let's talk about iconic brides and bridal looks so we've talked about royals um quite a bit on the podcast Jane already brought up an example and you know I think when we think of something like an iconic wedding dress it goes back to princess die so I mean although people love that dress or they hate that dress. Like I think we have already in our minds a visualization of what that dress is. It was designed by David and Elizabeth Emmanuel. It was an ivory taffeta gown with embroidered uh, embroidered sequins, lace, 10,000 pearls, and also kind of bringing in a value um, to this dress as well, estimated at $115,000. So it is a stunning display of style, grandiosity, wealth and it's been copied replicated and it's been a source of fashion inspo over the years there are kind of these like avant-garde um kind of anti-bridal lines that i've been seeing and a lot of them like have a kind of resurgence of this big poofy sleeve which i think is really interesting how they target it for the anti-bride that's kind of edgy and cool. And like, I'm not like the other brides, <laughs> but they're referring to one of the most iconic and kind of quintessential like design elements that is just this display of kind of royalty and just makes me think of Princess Di, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, we can look at some other modern or like recent examples and like, God help us, but I am going to talk about the Jonas Brothers wedding. That's like a gold mine of wedding content. It's a gold mine of wedding content. So we have like Priyanka Chopra and Sophie Turner, who both had two weddings. So they both had multiple looks. You know, Sophie Turner had their Vegas elopement um, where she wore just this really simple white jumpsuit. It was definitely giving like, um, you know, Elvis uh and uh um oh my god why did I just forget her name (laughs) Priscilla Uh, Priscilla Presley (laughs) vibes yes and um 
you know, then we can look at Priyanka Chopra, who, you know, they had two weddings. So they did, you know, a Hindu Eastern wedding, and then they had their like Christian Western ceremony as well. So for her Hindu ceremony, she wore red langa, and it was designed by, excuse me if I butcher this, but Sabasachi Mukherjee. And it was made by 110 embroiders, and it took a total of over 3,000 hours to create this custom piece. And her Western dress for the couple's, again, Christian ceremony was paired with a 75-foot-long veil that literally took five people. So I think, like, especially for that, both those ceremonies and the branding and the publicity that particularly took place for Nick and Priyanka Chopra's wedding was just immense. And so Mm -hmm. I think that everybody has a visualization of this, you know, stunningly long uh, veil. (laughs) Yeah, surprisingly. I also just to tie this back to a previous Art Pop episode, and again, hating on the brand Chanel. um, But like, (laughs) the comment of Karl Lagerfeld of like, art is not or like fashion is not art, it belongs on the street. Like I can understand that to a certain extent. But I will say like, when I hear Mm -hmm. something like, it took 3,000 hours to custom create this dress and like five people will hold this veil and like custom embroidery. I'm like, how is this not in a museum? Like that is so much artistic effort and craftsmanship going into something that I'm like, this is fine art and it's ridiculous. You you best believe that is <laughs> that is archived somewhere. Um, I think it was a very iconic look and I think it is something that we're already looking back on now, but I think it will be one. You know, it's like interesting because when I Google, you know, most iconic brides, you know, it gives me some royals and then it, it gives me like weddings like um like Beyonce's wedding, which to be honest, like it's iconic because it's Beyonce and she's a celebrity. So this article is bringing that up, but like I only have a visualization of what her dress looks like, which is, you know, this like classic, like early 2000s mermaid gown, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't really like iconic, even like Kim Kardashian and Kanye West wedding, I don't think is something that was like, super iconic that like Kim was this like iconic bride at the time. And we were like obsessed with the look. But I think when we look back on something like because there was so much branding and publicity for Nick and Priyanka's, I, I do think that is one to think about and look back on. Oh, yeah. Just um, like the amount of articles alone about the veil and the, you know, different yeah. designs and stuff like that. I will say, too, I love your reference to the kind of like, uh, you know, Vegas drive through Reading pinup look from mm-hmm. the 60s because I just love that aesthetic and that vibe. But also one of my favorite modern brides was Lily Allen and David Harbour doing their Vegas wedding. And just like the little yeah. like mini skirt button up white dress and like poofy Priscilla Presley hair I was like I love it yeah yeah and it does kind of you know I think part of modern bridal culture is the elopement bride and I think we're seeing that more and more for a couple different reasons again I think it's just kind of like vibe that people like but there is also that kind of cost component Mm -hmm. um and I, but I think it does also show like what people do and do not care about. And I think that there is a level of like kind of like wealth and status that is kind of brought into the mix of this conversation because it's hard to avoid that when historically that is such a big part of celebrity, um, but also in art history, as you were talking about, Jane. Um, 
But I just wanted to talk about kind of three looks that I have kind of in comparison because all these different weddings and these bridal looks are very, very different. I think they're all very recent. And I think it just kind of like encapsulates and culminates how weddings just look very different these days. Um, But they're all these kind of displays of vibe, authenticity for the couple, but also wealth. So I did bring in uh, Alexandra Daddario's Daniel Frankel look in her New Orleans wedding. The photographer really captured this with this kind of vintage greeny hue, which just is like literally stunning. Her now husband is wearing this striped beige suit. They did the umbrella dance, like, or dance parade. Um, I'm like, you guys forced it it to rain so you could use these gorgeous lace umbrellas. (laughs) Right. So clearly everything about this wedding is curated, but it's also, it's curated in a way that looks very wholesome. It looks very intimate. Um, It doesn't, it's curated to like not, I think, look like this huge display of wealth, even though we know, um, we know that it was because they're both these celebrity couples and, you know, however much they spend on their wedding is their, their business, of course. But um, it's interesting how now we have the ability to kind of curate this particular aesthetic that was achieved by this photographer and by this artist. Um, we can also look at, which we've talked on the podcast, a very <laughs> controversial look, uh, Kourtney Kardashian's Dolce & Gabbana corseted white mini dress with an intricate veil of the Virgin Mary. Um, I think however you feel about it, um, this is a very and is going to be a very iconic look to look back on. Also, giving some of that anti vibe, anti bride vibe, yeah. excuse me, um, but also, you know, just another example of the Kardashian empire. And I think as that kind of builds, I think the more weddings we see from the Kardashians will, I think, like be more iconic and kind of present each bride's kind of authenticity and and their vibe. Like I don't think we really got that from something like. Um, like Kim's prior weddings, but I think if she does choose to have a wedding in the future, I think it's something that we'll want to digest more than maybe we did. Yeah, well, back then, and if that makes sense, totally. And to your point earlier, also just like how so much of the anti-bride look comes from like referencing traditional bridal wear, and you know, mm-hmm. kind of like the very elaborate like church vibe mm-hmm. that you know she had in this wedding, and um. I don't know. I think that that is very interesting too, how it's like, it's all kind of like going back to the same thing, whether it's seen as like a stylistic commentary on that. And Alexandra did Dario's wedding as well of like that kind of intimate vibe that is Mm -hmm. at the same time, very curated and kind of Mm -hmm. all going back to the same reference point of what we associate as like the big, you know, traditional white wedding. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And both having those cultural vibes, you know, like New Orleans style weddings, like we all have an idea of kind of the uh, cultural components that come into something like that. And people just go to New Orleans to be a part of that. You know, people obviously have thoughts and opinions about what they think is, you know, commodifying Catholic iconography, you know, which is very interesting. And we have talked about that on the on the pod. Um, so we don't have too much time to get into that today. Um, again, it's kind of hard to commodify something that has complete and utter control over, you know, the world, but <laughs> do without what you will. Um, talking about also complete and utter control of the world, uh, Ms. Paris Hilton. <laughs> what a segue. What a segue. She did get married, um, I believe in, I believe in 2022, maybe that was 2021, but very recently. And a, 
when I say like the world's eyes were on her, I think that we were all really, really interested in what our kind of pop culture queen was going to wear because Paris Hilton herself, I think, has had somewhat of a rebranding moment in terms of talking about the character that she built up when she was on a reality TV show um, and kind of breaking down that wall and, and letting people know that that was kind of a fantasy or like a persona that she was putting on and was not necessarily um, her and her ideal. But her wedding dress really encapsulated this Grace Kelly look. Mm-hmm. So also this return to something kind of like a I mean, kind of very much like a princess dress, um, evoking someone as iconic as Grace Kelly as well. Now, Paris Hilton did wear multiple looks, but I think, again, these kind of three looks kind of encapsulate, you know, tying to different uh, like cultural aspects, um, but you can see their individuality, which I think is interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I feel like kind of an anomaly for having only one outfit for my wedding. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah are you are you only doing one outfit I'm only yeah. one yeah because I was like yeah I just I don't know it just felt like too much to try to coordinate and um I'm very lucky because my sister's sister-in-law um is like runs a wedding dress store and she's like helping me pick a beautiful one and I was like I find this beautiful dress that I love I just want to wear it all night but um my sister did do three separate looks for her wedding day yeah yeah, I think for for me and to kind of paint a little bit of picture about what my wedding is looking like because um my wedding um will be a non-religious ceremony, but we are bringing in, you know, cultural elements of, you know, uh, Malaysian Hindu culture and, you know, Western American culture, Oklahoma culture, if you will, <laughs> yeehaw. Um, it will not be a yeehaw wedding, but anyways. Um, so for myself, I am wearing more of a you know traditional white uh, Western dress, but I'm also getting my hands hennaed. Um, there's going to be a lot of um, gold colors, food that Love evoke it. the Hindu Malaysian culture. And Thieben, my fiance, will be wearing a, a traditional wedding attire uh, for a Hindu wedding. It's not called the jippa um i'm still with the lingo but um (laughs) um so ours is very much a fusion and i think what is interesting when i look at something like nick and priyanka's wedding how they did two different ceremonies right we don't really have the luxury to do that but i think the other component of particularly looking at fusion weddings with uh you know hindu and christian weddings is both ceremonies are just so different. Mm-hmm. A Hindu ceremony lasts very, very long. It's like almost an hour, uh, if not more. There are so many little um, visual ties, components, so many people involved in that ceremony that approach the altar. It just takes a lot of people to do that, that logistically I don't see very many examples of trying to blend the two cultures into one ceremony because they're just, it's very difficult because they're so different. And so that's kind of the struggle I am having because um, even though people blend their weddings, typically what they'll do is they will do a traditional Hindu ceremony and then maybe they'll have a Western reception, mm-hmm. which is not what we are trying to accomplish. And so it's it's very interesting, you know, when I look at Nick and Priyanka, although it was on this grandiose, you know, highly publicized scale, it, it's very synonymous with what other couples do. It's just not what we will be doing. So it, it'll be interesting. And I think that we have found ways to combine the two for it to um, have a presence of both 
cultures, not necessarily religions, but it's definitely what we're doing is not, I would say, um, I don't want to say a norm. It's just been hard to find examples or research of that happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, again, tying it all to the imagery of weddings, there's such a kind of expectation and pressure and a really cool opportunity to bring in a lot of symbolism about your life in your mm. background and, and your partner's background and all of that into a wedding ceremony. And so that seems like something yeah. that is like, when I think about like our weddings that we're planning this year um, and, you know, the Pompeii wedding portrait where it's like, this seems to be <laughs> a thread where it's like, people have this, uh, it's like a, an event in your adult life, like one of the few where you're bringing in a bunch of different you know, elements to represent yourself and, you know, kind of yeah. this new start with somebody else or like the blending of a new family and, and stuff like that. That's yeah. really interesting. There's a lot of like visuals that come into that. Definitely. And I, and I'm loving the visuals. And so it's been, you know, obviously having that like lens, you know, knowing what I want, what I can wear, but also how to encapsulate all these things I think has been really fun, but also um, I am definitely putting that pressure on myself, but also, you know, it's necessary. I want to make sure that things are done the right way. I want to make sure that things are done appropriately. Not that we're, I am doing that to please other people, but I don't want to do something just to do it. You know, it's yeah. so, um, and, and all those visuals are, um, are kind of encapsulated in, in all of that. So it, it is kind of interesting, you know, when I do look at these brides and these weddings, how I see how, individualistic and representative it is of that couple I am going to be really happy like when I see how like our wedding is visually very representative of us and I think that is something that is important to me yeah um, as much as I just love like little pretty things and if that's your vibe like go for it but I I'm, I'm happy to to kind of have those symbolic overwhelming Arnolfini portrait-esque like get me out of here there's yes. too much symbolism <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah well also you're an artist yeah. so it's like I feel like that is just kind of the way that you see the world too of like mm. you know through this visual lens of how do I represent myself and my thoughts and my feelings and like of course a marriage is gonna fall into that category also it's like a huge life event for yeah you. so I yeah, I yeah. love it. I'm here for all the Gianna symbolism <laughs> coming up. It's it's fun to exist in my brain. Yeah. I'm um, also like, should I get a wedding portrait commission now? Like maybe I don't do a photographer, do like a painted portrait. Well, Jane, you know, I had that to kind of talk about today as a placeholder too, and kind of this return to old. Um, you know, you had talked about photography kind of being built in um and having like a presence in, in wedding culture and portraiture, um, kind of starting in the 1840s. But now it's funny to have this resurgence of wanting something so highly specific. And I think, again, like, I think we know that the privilege to have access to art and especially custom art is, um, is a tie to wealth and the means to be a patron. And I think having like a custom wedding portrait painted is definitely encapsulated in all of that. I think I'm definitely here for it, obviously, but I think it's part of the grandiosity that's mm -hmm. just adding to the wedding culture as well. Absolutely. And I mean, honestly, like photographers in a way, which is completely a separate thing from having, you know, somebody who has the talent and background to commission a portrait painting of you. We're again, very, there's a lot of things with our wedding that we're doing kind of like, like DIY in a way, but like, we're lucky that we have a friend who's a photographer who's going to take the photos for our wedding. And so, you know, it's, mm -hmm. but when you look around, like 
when I first started looking, it was like, oh yeah, like you can hire this like traveling wedding photographer for $10,000 or, you know, there is kind of a grandiosity with it and this built-in expectation that you will document the experience in some fashion. Um, But yeah. Not only will you document it, but now our photographers are always, are putting this specific lens to the photographs and, you know, artfully editing, editing them in the way that is to like the couple's stylized liking. And so obviously like I very much like respect these photographers prices and their art form. Um, But yeah, it was definitely, it was a struggle to find a photographer that I could afford specifically for a wedding yeah um yeah and so now I'm like I need to brush up my painting skills and do my own wedding portrait (laughs) definitely definitely you know you can always do that later you know you don't have to have a live portrait you can do it every yeah I can be like the Arnoldinis do it 10 years later (laughs) (laughs) paint myself in the back it's gonna be great like I was here the the other thing that it brings to mind such a cheesy example but it's like the Bridgerton wedding portrait and I think it's interesting oh, too. Like, my God, I love. It. I saw when I was, you know, in in the pandemic, binge watching Bridgerton like everyone else, and I was like, oh my God, that is a beautiful wedding portrait, and like I want to see this painting. But it is funny because when you look up things now of like, uh, you know, what are things to do at a wedding reception or like as we've been planning, a lot of the suggestions I saw were like hire a live painter for people to watch you like get your painting done and I was like this is like you said very much the kind of like return to the old and showing up in like current pop culture tv Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that so right right and I mean I'm definitely not one to talk like I um I'm having my photographer throw in a role of like film um so she'll be shooting on film which I definitely think is um a trend it's that kind of return to old return to vintage that I I am um a sucker for yeah for sure yeah um (laughs) So most of the brides, or I mean, I should say the three brides and three wedding examples that I brought up um, recently are, are of course, all real people. But I think there's this uh, other component that I wanted to end on within pop culture uh, and, and looking at kind of history of brides is this fantasy aspect. And, you know, I did bring up something like Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, uh, the Disney uh, version, even Disney in general. I think there's a very kind of um, gendered hetero perspective that is involved with the ending moment of like a woman's life represented in these films where she gets married. Yay. And that's it, right? yeah. Yay. Yay. But we do have some iconic brides and some iconic moments. I really think about Carrie Bradshaw and Sex in the City, not even so much the Vivian Westwood dress as I do think about the blue Manolo Blanc <laughs> shoes. Because I think like from a marketing or like a branding perspective, it's just so fascinating when something that wasn't even supposed to necessarily be like this like direct like marketing moment like now forever these shoes are marketed and stylized as bridal shoes like that just doesn't go away from this one moment Mm -hmm. um and, and so it's that component that I think is super interesting because this is something that's more tangible that not that they're not incredibly expensive, but as compared to thousands of dollars, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a dress versus, you know, a thousand dollars just for a pair of shoes, most that's something that people can obtain and consume and they are using and their wedding. So I just am kind of fascinated by the blue Manolo Blancs. Yeah. And like you said too, also just how fascinating it is that it's from fictional brides. You know, it's not even like right. real things that we're seeing in our lives, but I would say that 
probably fictional brides play as much of an influence in like wedding aesthetic that people go for as you know royal weddings or celebrity weddings you know it's like what we see on tv yeah yeah i think so as well i mean um you know i think other examples um we have like um at least like for me, I think about like the princess bride or it's not even a bridal look, but I think about like Drew Barrymore and Ever After. And um, more recently, something like Schitt's Creek, like that wedding moment was very uh, pop culturally speaking important. Um, Schitt's Creek, I think, is very important to kind of look at that queer relationship um, as well. Since again, like we haven't brought a lot of examples um, into the fold um, that that are queer. So, um, and you know, at the end of the day, if you are a 2023 bride or future bride, you know, you can do whatever you want, sister. Live your life, live your dreams, do whatever you want. It's your day. Yeah. Literally. That is the main takeaway is like, if you're going to put this much work into something, just make sure it's what you like and what you want to do because it's so fun, but it is a lot of work. It is. One thing, Jane, you and I talked about like a month ago when I uh, invited you on for this episode was, I feel like when I am done planning my wedding, one, I feel like I'm kind of going to have my like personality back because I kind (laughs) of feel like I don't have, I'm kind of lost in almost like this uh, identity or or just wedding planning <laughs> mode. So I'll be nice to like have more well-rounded kind of other like hobbies maybe in my life again. Mm-hmm. But I know that sometimes like the joke is that like brides are super annoying and that like it just is over it is overwhelming to listen to this because it is overwhelming. It's a lot. Um but this is one of those things where Jane and I were kind of like like unsubscribe. I don't care like <laughs> Listen or don't listen. I completely understand that like talking about like your wedding can be like super fucking annoying, but like happy that you're here. And if you're not, I'll catch you next time. Like (laughs) I don't expect that anybody besides us really cares about this, but it's going to be like you and me just like this episode has uh, two listeners. Like, well, this is literally like on the kind of pre episode APT is a very professional operation and sends you a pre episode, (laughs) like form to fill out about like, what are you working on? And what can we talk about? And stuff like that. And in the section that was like, what have you been working on lately? I was like planning my wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Literally nothing else. Right. Right. I, I just do. Yeah. I I'm excited to get my personality back, but I will say one really fun thing that Theban and I are doing right now that we didn't think that we would enjoy as much as we are, is we are doing dancing lessons. And I also think it's like kind of nice to talk about, about the way that we're budgeting things too. So, and because we really doing and paying for like, wedding dancing lessons, the markup for that is just incredibly expensive. So what we are doing is we are kind of doing bi-weekly independent dance classes, uh, but we're doing them in just incorporating that into kind of like our date night budget. Um, It's like $40 a class and not something that we're necessarily budgeting for our wedding because we're actually just really enjoying it. And it's something just fun for us to do. So that has been 
my little nugget of like joy that it feels like I have something different to add to my personality that I'm just like, oh, I'm Gianna and I'm doing dance classes because I'm cool. Not not because I'm just a 2023 bride and I can't talk about anything else. (laughs) Like I'm doing these dance classes for fun. And that's it. For fun, because <laughs> I'm a fun, carefree person yeah. with, you know, an exciting personality, which is untrue. It but, is you know. Very, it's very, I'm impressed, honestly. But for wedding or no wedding, I'm like, dance classes, that is, that is next level. It's, it's been, it's been really fun. We did last night, we learned the Foxtrot and, um, you know, I'm like, I'm really impressed with us. Like it looks better in my head than it probably actually <laughs> looks right now but um but it is it's really fun and so that is just something you know for like future couples if you are think that you might be like interested in that I I'm just having a really great time with See, it I, and, um, I would highly recommend I love that for you I would be tempted to do that had the one dance class my fiance and I took together not almost ended in our immediate breakup because oh my god <laughs> because of the like severe personality clash that dancing particularly in like a structured environment brings out in us which is like he is a rules person like you know there are Mm. steps there's like a plan there is I'm going to do this the right way type which is very actually how you're supposed to dance and do dance lessons and I'm like I don't know I just want to have fun (laughs) like so the whole time I was like like come on like let's just do our own thing and he was like we are literally here to learn the steps and learn the rules what are you doing this is giving me like uh cc and schmidt from new girl where he had like he cannot break away from the steps and yes yeah i love it i love it you were living your rom-com fantasy jane yeah yeah that's exactly (laughs) what's happening Oh my gosh. Well, Jane, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Congratulations in advance on your wedding. We're so happy for you here on APT and we love having you on the podcast. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for your time and your research. This was really, really fun. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh. Well, everyone, you can listen to this episode, as you know, anywhere you get your podcast. You can, Jane, where can people follow you? At Women's Art Wednesday. Best place. Uh, at Women's not, Art Wednesday. Not plug Women's Art Wednesday. <laughs> so at Women's we Art love Wednesday, it. womensartwednesday.org. Check it out. Fantastic. Well, everybody, and with that, we will talk to you all in two Tuesdays. Bye, everyone. Bye. Art Pop Talks executive producers are me, Bianca Martucci Fink. And me, Gianna Martucci-Fink. Music and sounds are by Josh Turner, and photography is by Adrian Turner. And our graphic designer is Sid Hammond. <laughs>